Psalm 77, 488. In the Pew Bibles, please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to the Lord, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the, day, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. <coughs> then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at the end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your holy deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like you, our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the water saw you, O oh God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lighted up the world. The thunder, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Tears and crying is how we enter the world. And tears and crying is how we mark the final gathering of family and friends at our funeral. While we do many appropriate things of trying to remember loved ones that have died, the simple fact is that death has taken another loved one from us. And that shock of loss is often painful, it's shocking, and, and deep down inside, we know that it's absolutely wrong. I have never walked away from a funeral thinking, now that's the way that life should be. Instead, I kind of walk out shaking my head, reminded about the brevity of life and the pain, that pain is just a part of our life. Life is filled with lament. And one of the things that I've discovered in the past two decades of my life is that I have spent a lot of time dealing with pain. I don't know where you've been in the past 20 years of your life. Some of you don't, haven't even hit the 10-year the mark. But for me, the past 20 years, I have dealt with a tremendous amount of dealing with pain, dealing with sorrow, dealing with frustration, dealing with the why, oh God, why is this happening? I've done a lot of lamenting, both internally and externally. But do you know what I've also discovered during that time? I've, I've learned that while crying is very natural and sometimes it's even easy, yes, even for a man, it can, crying can be easy, lamenting, the kind that is biblical, that is honest, and that is redemptive, is not natural. It's not natural for us. There's something about a lament that makes us feel very uncomfortable, that makes us very scared even. Think, for instance, when was the last time that you sat with somebody at a funeral who was completely overcome with grief and sorrow? 
Was that a moment where you go, man, I'd love to just hang around this person again. I can't wait to just sit next to this sobbing mass of flesh who's just letting it all pour out. This is really fun. This is how I want to spend my Tuesday night. Or think about a funeral where you've heard the audible sounds of sorrow, of weeping in a sanctuary or a funeral home. Those moments become etched in our very hearts and our souls. And part of the reason why they're they're so scary is because we don't have a well-developed or biblical category for lament. We know how to cry, but we probably don't know how to really lament. So I've been asked, Paul, we've heard that you're going to be starting this series on lamentations why January 1st? Why are you going to start January 1st? Shouldn't you start like on an upbeat, casting vision for the year and say, man, this is where we're going to be going. Let's get really excited, get everybody kind of riled up into a frenzy. Part of my responsibility as a, a pastor, your pastor, is to say, let's look back. Let's look at our past. Let's see where the areas that we need to grow. So in our next year, we can experience more fruit in our lives. Over the past few years, I think that we as a congregation have really struggled struggled with this idea of pain. How do we deal with our personal pain? How do we deal with corporate pain or another person's pain? In this, even in this election season, past election season, man, what the heck? We have seen people just struggle and deal with pain and frustration and feeling left out and not included and wondering where in the world is God in all of this. We've seen it in the death of family members and friends and we wonder, God, where in the world are you in all of this? How do we answer these questions? Is it okay to raise our fist to God and say, where are you, God? Are your tender mercies gone today? But we don't have those categories which to deal with our pain. So what we're going to be doing, my intent for the next eight weeks, is to look at this concept of pain and suffering and and to look at it from two different kinds of perspectives. One, the first is to kind of view view pain in a, how do we view pain in a corporate or community setting? How do we as the people of God deal with pain? And two, we we need to kind of look at the perspective to consider what should we do when pain does not resolve quickly. We all take want to take kind of like that, man, I got a headache, so the first thing I want to do is, at least for me, I want to take something and make it just go away. So what we're going to do is kind of, in other words, we're going to kind of say, Where do you go when pain is widespread and and when it does not look like it's going to end soon? Where do you go? What, What language do you use or what biblical categories are even available for you to to use? How do you pray in the midst of pain? What should you be thinking in the midst of pain and suffering and frustration? How, and how can you help somebody who is in the midst of all this pain and frustration? And these are some of the questions that I want to try to address as we go through Lamentations. So I want to give you a few reasons why. Grace, you can back up all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are some of the reasons Lamentations now? Number one, pain is inevitable, right? Pain is inevitable, and we need to be prepared. And I want you to be prepared for pain. I want you to be prepared not only for the time when you suffer personally, but for the time when you are surf- dealing with suffering in the midst of with your circle of friends, your missional community, or your neighborhood, our city, or our nation. I want you to know how to lament corporately. Secondly, why, why Lamentations now? Because pain creates very strong emotions. Very strong emotions. And I want you to know, what do you do with these emotions? 
Our tendency is either to, to deny them, right? It's not there. I'm just going to get over it. Or try to resolve the pain way too quickly. Another reason why lamentations now, because sometimes pain does not go away quickly, does it? And I want you to learn how to live in lament. I don't want to give you a quick fix, right? Here, here, here's your Advil, your biblical Advil. Now just move on. I, I want you to learn how, how do, when, when it does not dissipate, when it does not go away, how do we live right now in the midst of this lament, this pain, this sorrow, this suffering? And lastly, I, I want suffering or lamenting well provides us an opportunity for evangelism. As the world sees and hears God-centered language that they don't have. The world is always watching. Eugene Peterson wrote uh, the foreword to Michael Card's book called A Sacred Sorrow, a book that I'd highly recommend. A Sacred Sorrow, Reaching Out to God in the Lost Language of Lament. And he said this. He gives kind of a, a really good insight about how, uh, how the people of God deal with suffering might be a great evangelistic tool. He said this, one reason, and this first quote just boggles my mind, one reason why people are uncomfortable with tears and the sight of suffering is that it is a blasphemous assault on the precariously maintained American spirituality or the pursuit of happiness. Nobody loves going through a wake because it attacks our pursuit of happiness. He goes on to say, they want to avoid evidence that things are not right with the world as it is, without Jesus, without love, without faith. It would be a lot easier to keep the American faith if they did not have to look into the face of suffering. So learning the language of lament is not only necessary to restore Christian dignity to suffering and repentance and death. It is necessary to provide a Christian witness to a world that has no language for and is therefore oblivious to the glories of the wilderness and of the cross. <coughs> so I know that you know how to cry, but do you know how to lament? Do you know how to deal, really deal with your own pain, the pain with others, or the pain of a community? Do you see the value and the purpose of learning the language of lament? Do you see how important biblical lament to be, could be to a world that has no category for the solution for suffering? We need this topic as a community. And we need the book of Lamentation because it shows us this anew and this teaching, and it teaches us how to thrive in the midst of pain and suffering. Because many of us, when we hit suffering, we immediately hit a wall, we start stagnating, and in fact, we start doing what? We regress. We start pulling back. We pull back from our community, we pull back from God, we, pull, we emotionally detach from one another, we, our spouse, our friends, and we just, we don't know what to do with pain. And Lamentation says, this is what you do. So we got to ask, what is a lament? What does it mean even when we, we talk about a lament? And so before we jump into Psalm 77, I'll just give you a few kind of introductory remarks and ideas on the subject of lament to make sure that we're all on the same page. First of all, this is what a lament is. A lament is a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. It gives voice and it gives words to emotions that believers feel because of pain, of suffering, and the questions that begin to bubble to the top. And this probably, for some of you, scares the living daylights out of you. I, I don't, you want me to howl? But isn't that kind of sometimes what your heart just cries out to the Lord? In the midst of it, you just go, why? Why, God? 
And it, from that, the emotion just flows forward. Secondly, what is a lament? The Psalms are filled with lament. In fact, at least one-third of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is lament. Forty-two are individual laments, and 16 are corporate laments. So one-third of the book that Israel would sing in worship, one-third of it would be songs of lament. Laments are found throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So this is important that we understand. It's part of worship. We also need to be able to see that laments are both personal, communal, or both. A personal lament. A corporate lament. And sometimes, like we're going to see in Psalm 77, it's one person who's speaking individually for the corporate sense. We're also going to see that laments wrestle with the circumstances of life which raise very difficult questions regarding the seeming presence of God's the seeming absence of God's presence and the mystery of his purposes. In other words, lamentations or laments ask two questions. Where are you, God? And it also asks, if you love me, why is this happening? And you can even hear it in Psalm 22, which should really be a very familiar kind of you should recognize it because it's also used in the New Testament by a person that we worship. It said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Christ used these very words and it's dealing with really hard questions that tend to bubble to the top. We also got to remember that Lament is not the opposite of praise, even though it asks very difficult questions and wrestles very deeply. So lament is not the opposite. It's not like black and white. No, it's all the same kind of language. We got to learn how in worship to lament. Lament is often the pathway to praise. It is the transition from pain to promise. Lament is the place in the wilderness which God leads us. And lament wrestles with the brokenness in and around us. Lament is the land between the brokenness and God's mercy. So it is still praise. And to lament, lastly, is not to be faithless. Given the prominence of lament found in the Psalms and throughout the Bible, to lament well is actually an act of faith. Problems, pain, and suffering are very much a part of what it means for us to be human. So to cry out to God and say, where are you in the midst of this? Where are you? Have your tender mercy stopped? Where is your compassion, God? That is not faithless. To struggle, to question, and to lament is part of what it means to be a Christian. When you understand the problem of sin in our world the, and God's power in the beauty of redemption and this future plan where he is going to make all things right, the heart of the Christian cries out in faith, How long, O Lord? How long will we remain here? When will we fully experience your full presence in our lives? When can we see you face to face? When will you heal the brokenhearted? When will you redeem this land? When will you take us home? How long, O oh Lord? So every lament really is a prayer. It's a prayer. It's the crying of hurting. It's the crying of the confused. It's a crying of pain-filled people, yet it is coming from a believing heart that this is taking place. Lament is an act of faith where we resist the temptation to stop talking to God because we're angry or disenchanted with him. 
Lament actually expresses to God what he already knows about our hearts. God goes, I know. I know you're broken. I know this relationship is messed up. I know you're experiencing loss and pain. I know. Now just put words to it. So to cry is inherently human, but to lament is particularly what it means to be Christian. So I chose Psalm 77 as an introduction to the series because it provides a wonderful example of both the depth of pain found in lament and the way that lament brings comes to a conclusion. Psalm 77 is filled with honest struggle, with pain, deep pain, tough questions, determined trust, and really a biblical foundation, a real grounding. And the psalm is ascribed to Asaph, according to Jeduthun, who was another man that was appointed by King David to kind of lead worship, uh, lead the congregation in worship, and to sing at the dedication of the temple found in 2 Chronicles. So, but we're really not sure about the history of this, this psalm. We don't, we, there's no specific hints as to what is going on historically, what, what, what circumstances are plaguing their time, and what God is up to. But it is clear that as a nation, as a whole, they are suffering. And it may be due to God's displeasure with them. And you can see that kind of in verse 9. It appears as though hardship has really descended on the people of God, and they are just really struggling in this time of pain. The psalm is also very personal, but it's also communal. You'll see the, the I's and the we's going on in here. A singular person is speaking with a, 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 a personal struggle, and his questions are personal, but he is doing so on behalf of a larger group of people. His lament is personal, but it is also reflective of the, of the broader community that we are feeling this. We are wondering. We are we're struggling with this. But the psalmist pours out his heart in a painful prayer while anchoring his heart in God's faithfulness in prayer. He prays in pain, and yet he remembers his past. So Psalm 77 begins with the, I cry out, I cry aloud to God. And then Asaph repeats it, right? For, kind of for emphasis sake, as if you weren't listening. He says again, aloud to God. The psalm starts this way just kind of to frame out the, the tone for the whole text. He's in pain and he is not silent. However, he is not just talking. He's not just complaining. He's not just crying. He's crying out in prayer. He's crying out in prayer. And we have here a, a, an example of a painful prayer that the psalmist is offering out loud to God. Look at the other references to prayer that follow in the first two verses. Verse 1, he will hear me. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble, in the day of my trouble, I will seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. And so it's kind of referring to even the posture of prayer. Clearly, the psalmist is reaching out to God in the midst of the pain. And while we don't know what the source of the pain was, it, we know that he's struggling. But what I want you to see from the outset relates to what I said earlier about lament being a, a prayer. It takes faith. It takes faith to pray in the midst of pain. To lament even in the, in the midst of all the messy struggles and the tough questions. To, to actually lament is to, is, it's an act of faith as one opens up his or her heart to God. So I want to establish from the outset that prayerful lament with all of its tense challenges and ugly words is better than silence. There's still hope in lament, even if it does not resolve quickly. Many people are afraid 
of, of lament, but I would tell you here that there is something far worse than lament, and it is silent despair. Those are the two polar opposites. Prayerful lament with all of its messiness or a silent despair. And they're, they're kind of counterintuitive. Lament and despair are complete opposites. Despair is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief and, and the denial that God even exists in the midst of my pain. And while lament is one of the deepest, the most costly demonstrations in the belief in God. And if you've ever worked with a, a couple who is having marital problems, you know this to be true. One sure sign of brokenness and hopelessness is the refusal to even speak to another. When you hear that data point that I, I just won't talk to her anymore, I can't talk to him anymore, you know that things are really bad. As strange as it is, I, I find myself kind of rejoicing and happy when I hear from a couple, well, we fought on and off all week. As odd as that might sound, that's good news, especially if the previous week was marked by an absence of talking. Starting to talk, even if it is messy, is a good place to start. And I think the same is true with our relationship with God. I have no doubt that there are several of you here today who have even stopped talking to God. Because it's messy, and, and I, I just don't know what to say anymore, so I'm cutting off. You haven't answered my prayer? Done. You stop praying, and I hope today that you'll be encouraged and motivated again to at least pray messy, lament-filled prayers. Or maybe you have a friend who is just really struggling and there are some things that they prayed that you just kind of wince at and go, oh, maybe, maybe we can find a nicer way, a more Christianese kind of way to phrase that because that's really kind of messy and dark. Before you jump in too quickly, can I encourage you, at least they're praying. It's a start. Prayers of lament take faith because the pain or the tough questions are not always quickly resolved. Notice the psalmist's description of the emotional struggle within himself found in verses 2 and 4. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open like some of you this morning after New Year's Eve. Uh, or I am so troubled that I cannot speak. He's praying, but he, it is not bringing any comfort. It's not bringing any kind of encouragement. It's not bringing any kind of rest. It's not bringing any resolution. His prayers are not, if you will, working, right? I've been doing these things. Where are you, God? And yet, what is he doing? He continues to pray. Take note of the fact that the lament does not lead. Lament does not always lead to resolution. But it, it's not always a resolution. Well, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Lament does lead us to some kind of resolution. But it's not always the resolution that is quick and timely. Grief is not tame. And lament is cannot be used like a linear equation. And grief is wild and crazy. It wreaks havoc in your soul. And yet at the same time, we cannot hold lament as if I just say these prayers, I'm going to be fixed. Lament is where you go while in pain with faith-filled prayers and a faith-filled belief that one day, one day, there will be a resolution to all of this. It might not even be in my lifetime. Chew on that for a little bit. It might not. I may be living this entire life in lament. But you know what? Someday, God is going to bring a resolution to this. 
Lament, lament is where you live, or even better, how you live when your life doesn't end like a Hallmark movie. But, rem- but here, there's more here than just, just prayer. The psalmist is dealing with very difficult questions. Verses 5 through 9, he, he takes a turn away from just focusing, focusing on his pain to considering the central question. And the central question is, why isn't God doing more? He begins to consider the days of old, which is often what we do, right? In the midst of pain, remember when? That was so good. We were all together as a family, or our marriage was this, or our nation was this, or this was this, and we keep on remembering the days of old. To, to remember my song in the night, to meditate in my heart, and to make a diligent search. He is thinking, and it is painful, and it leads to difficult questions. The psalmist lists six pointed and rhetorical kind of questions. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? I love the really, you know, really strong words. Forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? And has he, in his anger, shut up his compassions? Did he put a lock on it? Seal it? Throw away the key? Is it forever gone? Notice that he is questioning the favor, the love, the promise, the faithfulness, and the compassion of God. Those are dangerous things. Does the psalmist really believe that God is not loving and that God is unfaithful? I don't think so. The rest of the psalm will bear this out, but he does something really important here. Talking this way is is honest recognition that pain and suffering often create difficult emotions which we know are not based upon truth. But they feel true nonetheless. Pain creates all kinds of tensions in our lives. And these honest rhetorical questions are a vital part of lament. In fact, I would tell you that that humble, honest, pain-filled questions offered to God in prayer are part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus said, and he was perfect, Son of God, on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows, right? He knows. He's omniscient. But yet, in his his pain, he asked the very hard questions. James, James Boyce, who was the, uh, the, the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia uh, for, for 32 years. So my tenure for 10 is nothing compared to James Montgomery Boyce. He said this about these types of questions. He said this, it is better to ask them than not to ask them. Because asking them sharpens the issues and pushes us towards the right positive response. Alexander McLaren insists that, he goes on to say, Alexander McLaren insists that asking such questions is good. He writes, doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening, like poisonous mists in their hearts. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. Voice speaks only as a pastor who has dealt with people's pains for three decades at one church. He's seen it all. He, he knows that God is able to handle the difficult questions. And as a father, I know that this is even true. When my children ask questions, uh, question even my actions from, with hurting or uh, in humble hearts, I'm inclined to listen to them. And it only makes me love them more. In many respects, I'm I'm glad and affirmed that they want to know and they want to understand. And that only takes place with difficult questions. Dad, why? Why? Why did you do this? Why did you say this? And when it's done with a humble heart, 
that's inquisitive. I want to know. And my heart is pulled towards it. And praying through pain means that we honestly deal with the strong emotions that we feel and the difficult questions that we face. So is there anyone here who has stopped talking to God? Is there anything that you stopped talking to God about? I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm talked out. <clears throat> Any questions that you don't dare to even ask? Have you asked questions even with a wrong heart? Is there someone nearby you who is lamenting and who you need to help a little bit differently in light of this text? Lament is humbly praying through prayer and humbly praying through pain. And ultimately, it leads us to worship while being, while also being worship itself. So, the psalm does something. It takes, takes a shift. The psalm begins with the repetition of aloud twice. And now we see another important repetition in verse 11. Remember. Verse 70, or psalm 77 illustrates both the journey and the destination of lament. Verses 1 through 9 set up the tension. This is painful. This is ugly. I got a lot of questions. And then... Verses 10 through 20 ultimately resolve it. I chose this psalm so that you could see easily that, that kind of progression, but not every lament ends this way or this quickly. We're going to see that in Lamentations. Lamentations takes a totally different format and a method to, towards resolution. We'll get there when we get there. But this is where biblical lamentation ends. The cry of the cross yields to an empty tomb. The cry, you hear that? The cry of the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, ultimately leads to a beautiful and powerful resolution, which is an empty tomb. It gives way to, he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. And that, that's the hope where it's Paul says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is being revealed to us. It's, it's nothing. What you're dealing with now uh, is going to give way to the glories of the risen Christ. Lament eventually leads to joy and it leads to resolution, but getting there may not come quickly, easily, or in the time frame of your expectation. So in the interim, interim, we need to remember. And this, and that is what begins in verse 10. You see that there? In verse 10, Asaph makes a significant shift with the word then. And then the subsequent appeal to God's powerful deliverance. Notice the language connected to remembering in verse 10. Appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Or verse 11, with the, will remember the deeds of the Lord. The reflection then kind of goes more, has a more personal appeal, as if Asaph is directly talking to God. Verse, saying in 11, yes, I will remember, I will remember your deeds of old. I, I will ponder all your work and, and meditate on your mighty deeds. Asaph is, is looking back and reflecting on the work of God in Israel's past. His lament has brought him to a place where he is now remembering the numerous kind of ways in which God has indeed proven himself time and time and time and time and time and time again to be trustworthy. Then the focus shifts from the historical works of God to the very character of God. Verse 13, your way, O oh God, is holy. Your God is like our God. You, verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You make known your might among the people. Asaph's remembering is now becoming more and more kind of narrow-like, kind of laser-like focus, and it, it has shifted 
to, has shifted to history and to the character of God. And do you see where it's specifically heading? Verse 15 provides a really powerful hint, and it becomes more, more evident in verses 16 through 20. This prayerful lament finds a hope-filled resolution in the ultimate moment that defines the people of Israel. What defined their relationship with God. And that one moment was their exodus moment. Verse 15 talks about the redemption of the children of Jacob and Joseph, a clear reference to their time in Egypt. Verses 16 through 20 talks about the Red Sea crossing, a defining moment in the life of Israel, using similar language that is found with the Song of Moses which the people sang after witnessing the defeat of Pharaoh when the sea shut, closed in over Pharaoh's people. And these verses are filled with powerful and comforting language. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. The skies poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was, was in the whirlwind. Your lightning filled, lifted, uh, lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprint were, footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see what he's doing? In Exodus and the Red Sea crossing, God's power and his people, his care for his people were clearly seen. You see what Asaph is doing? He anchors his questioning. Hurting heart to the single greatest redemptive moment in the life of Israel. Everything in my world is shifting and giving way. I am throwing my anchor in this one moment. He took his heart back to the foundation of everything. And as he talks about this moment, he uses words that are incredibly precious. Your way was through the sea. Yet your footprints were unseen. Yet you led your people like a flock. Exodus was the anchor for Asaph's lament. There was no greater moment in Israel's history. It defined his understanding of God's character and gave him hope in the midst of a very, very dark moment of lament when it seemed as if God had forgotten about his people. Exodus was the anchor for his weary soul. Remembering began to lead him through lament. Which leads the question, so what do we do? Past 20 years, I've said that I've just really struggled with pain and lament. It's kind of hit a crescendo the past couple of years dealing with some different things that have been going on. And I've been having to ask this question, okay, God, where are you? What are you when are you going to resolve this? This is painful. This is exhausting. I, I just want to be done with this. Can you not break through? And after many times, you find yourself in despair. I, as your pastor, find myself despairing and going, can I keep going through ministry? Can I keep doing this? Because this is exhausting. It wreaks havoc on my marriage. It wreaks havoc on my personal life, my emotional life, my spiritual life. God, why ministry? Why these people? Why this? Which led to a tattoo, right? Every good uh, kind of hipster pastor has got to have one. And so my, my most recent was, has this anchor with the, the words, crux, mihi, ancora. The cross is my anchor. In the midst of pain and suffering and, and struggle and the crying out to God, the only thing that I can throw my 
my anchor back to, in my remembering, is that I have a redemptive moment. Israel had their exodus, where God parted the sea and made a way for them. But as a Christian, our exodus moment, the place where we find deliverance, where we find hope, is in the cross. That's where we find our place of throwing our anchor and hooking in. It's where our questions are to be taken. It is the foundation of our hope, our confidence, that no matter how dark, that no matter how bleak, no matter how difficult life is or is going to be, that God has already proven himself for us and nothing is against us. Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? Paul's already really gone through some painful kind of stuff. And now he's saying, if God is for us, what's the next line? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? you need to throw an anchor in something, that's it. It'll never fail. It'll always hold firm. Therefore, friends, we can lament the pain. We can lament the brokenness. We can lament the sufferings of this life while anchoring our hearts to the very bedrock of the truth of the grace of God. We can lament and we can join in the lamentations of others as they wrestle with really difficult, ugly questions and challenging emotions. We can do it because we have thrown our anchor back in the most powerful, redemptive moment in our lives and their lives. Do you remember when? Just remember this moment, friends. He, he may not resolve this quickly. No, it might take a lifetime to find some re resolution. And you might not see it on this side of the grave. But you know what? Remember God. Remember his hand, his, his deliverance, his love, his care, his sustaining, even through your ugly questions and difficult emotions. God is there. Remember this. Remember this. Yes, he seems to have forsaken his love for you, or he seems to be absent in this moment. But remember, in your deepest moment of need, he lifted you from the miry clay, and he set your feet on solid ground at the foot of the cross. That's what he's done. We can keep praying, friends, and keep seeking, and we can keep wrestling with the dark nights of our souls. We can cry out to God in our pain. And we can do so with the hope. It's not like, man, I really hope this happens. But we can do it with a Christian hope that's rooted in the sure promises of God. We can, we can wrestle and cry out to God in our pain with the hope that one day God is going to make absolutely everything right. So in our lament, we can still trust. Amen? Father God, um, I am thankful that your shoulders are large enough to handle our prayers, our struggles, our questions, our tears, our anger. 
And I'm thankful that we are encouraged to come before the very throne of God with all of our prayers and all of our petitions and all of our laments. And God, that you don't shut the doors to our difficult questions and our human pain, but you fling them wide open because Christ identifies with us. He understands, for he has experienced every type of human pain, even being forsaken for our sake. So, Father God, I pray that in the next few weeks that you will help us understand pain, suffering, that we will become a beacon of gospel light in our communities, in our families, a watching world. Help us, Lord, especially those this morning who are struggling with pain that has been pain that has been hidden down deep, repressed for years, weeks, days. Lord, I pray that through Psalm 77 that this will find its way, their questions bubbling up again and give them confidence in you and that redemptive moment that's found in the cross. Lord, we pray, if it's possible, for quick resolution to our pain. But if not, Lord, may we be people who find our greatest comfort in your steadfast love, in your tender mercy. And we find our comfort knowing that he is not here. He's risen just as he said. Help us as we worship, Lord, to recognize the pain in this world, the joy found in life with Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name.